ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology, are the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't You're listening do to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, a critical examination of the world of pseudo-archaeology and the misrepresentation of archaeology in the world today. Each episode, we focus the lens of archaeology on a topic and discuss reality versus fantasy. We've covered everything from ancient aliens to crystal skulls, from DNA to modern fakes. Join us for our discussion this week and get ready to think critically. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the day is spent. Hi everyone and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Head, and I am joined today with Jens Nortroff, all the way from, are you back in Germany? Yes, I'm in Berlin, Germany right now. Okay. It's crazy, man, Uh, getting the times set up correctly. So... Jens, you're on, you've been on the show before, and last time you were on, you were telling us about the site you work at, which is, I'm going to try my damnedest to say this right, Golbeki Tepe? Yeah, good. Quite good. Sweet. I win. Um, but yeah, you were on telling us about your site and the work that you had done there, and you were disputing an article that had been written by some engineers, um, basically making some unsupported claims about the um, architecture there, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and one of the things that uh, I think was brought up in that article was um, two things. Uh, asteroid impacts that created uh, microdiamonds and a time period called the Younger Dryas. That's correct, right, yeah. So, <laughs> so you have kindly come back on the show to talk with us about both of those aspects because uh, there's been some new news about another or the same asteroid impact and more microdiamonds, and another article about um, the Younger Dryas and what that means for sites like Gobeki Tepe. Yeah. So, can you uh, can you start us off and and let us know? Can we start with the asteroid impact first? What exactly what exactly are people claiming here? I'll, I'm to I'm trying to make it really really short and brief because it's a long <laughs> discussion and a long debate. And actually, you know, there's this uh, period called the Younger Dryas, and apparently. After the last ice age, the last glacial maximum ended and the temperatures were apparently warming again, there was suddenly an abrupt climate change and it became colder uh, in parts of the world. And this is what's called the Younger Dries. It's a cold period which suddenly happened after, well, after it looked almost good and almost like people made it and the ice was retreating and everything was better, but suddenly uh, temperatures were dropping again. And uh, this happens to uh, um, be around a phase which um, coincides with the Upper Paleolithic and the, the end of the Upper Paleolithic, um, where uh, new ways of lives were all also um, uh, in development, where um, suddenly sedentary societies and agriculture and everything was coming together. And it was, it was thought, or people are... Uh, Coming up with the idea that this is related to uh, to a uh, comet comet impact that um, extraterrestrial uh, rock from space somewhere um, impacted on Earth and um, caused all these climate effects and those were this uh, apocalyptic cat- catastrophical scenario was somehow 
um, responsible for the abrupt climate change and for the cultural developments going on in the same period, which not necessarily must have been related, actually. So my first question is, uh, was the Younger Dryas an actual real thing? Did it actually happen? The Younger Dryas really actually happened. It is this cold period um, I'm talking, I uh, was just introducing in, in my first sentence. Right. Uh, the thing here is, um, the name uh, Younger Dryas already implies this. There also is an older Dryas and an oldest Dryas. So this is not a singular, unique, paleoclimatic event. Uh, it happened quite often in uh, in the past of this planet. So um, this is so it's more like a weather cycle. It is a, a climate cycle, and we don't really understand why and how this happened. So we have these uh, these um, glacial periods where the planet is covered in ice, and after some time the the ice is retreating, the glaciers are retreating, and it becomes warmer again. And then we have these um, these uh, Oscillations, these interstadials, or as they are called, where it becomes warmer again, um, <clears throat> but also as the younger dries, for example, um, mm -hmm. abrupt climate changes, where the climate is again, um, yeah, playing crazy and things are are changing again. The thing here is, and this is important, that the younger dries actually is uh, it's it's a period of climate change, but it's a complex and it has variable effects. So yes, it be it became colder, colder in parts of the world, but it also became warmer in other parts of the world. So this is not not a, a, a single scenario where everything uh, goes into one direction. This is a complex climate scenario, actually. So one of the claims that is sort of being made is that, and I and you just spoke to this, is that um, when the comet impacted. It caused this this climate change, and the whole world got cold. The whole world just became an ice cube, and clearly that's not what happened. Um, and you're also saying that this is kind of an oscillating um, climate event. So we, we've you were saying we've gone through three of these dryasses. Yeah, yeah. All right. Do we are we getting ready to go through another one? Do you know? Um, I mean, the the longest one is the younger dries. Um, I'm I'm not in not a climate expert at all myself. <laughs> Um, but this is uh, what would I just, uh, because I'm interested in the archaeological perspective, of, of course, because it is coinciding with the Natufian period where um, suddenly um, um, yeah, a change in, in subsistence patterns become visible, where people seem to uh, go back to uh, a more modern kind of lifestyle. But the, the relation to agriculture, for example, is still debated. And this is my my um, interest in younger dries debate, and this is why I I did some reading about it. But I'm, I'm by way no no climate expert. So you've done most of your well, most of the work that we've talked to you about anyway has been through uh, Golbeki Tepe. How does the how are you seeing the effects of the dryases? At Gobeki Tepe, or do you see the impact of them there? Actually, not really, because we're talking about a period after this. Uh, this happened. Oh, okay. There we um, go. So it's the end of the younger dries. Actually, what we what we do see, of course, is that um, the environment is changing, and then people are now um, changing subsistence pattern. Um, so we are in a in an optimal um, region and optimum of climate. Um, to uh, yeah, give rise to agriculture actually, and this is happening in the same time in the same period 
uh, and in the same place as the the monuments of Göbekli Tepe um, uh, erected. But there is no direct relation to to the younger Dries. Uh, not not in the in the way uh, certain theories would like to to press it. Well, I mean, we know that Gobeki Tepe has actually been built by aliens and that it was their their last message left to yeah. us in stone, correct? That's the point I, I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I have to bring it up. Uh, yeah. But obviously, no, that's not true. Uh, what Can you refresh our listeners' memories as to what Gobeki Tepe is? Short uh, summary, it's uh, monumental architecture built by hunter-gatherers. Um, at the moment, we are interpreting the site as a social hub, a place of meetings and gatherings and rituals where several groups of the region came together to exchange um, information, uh, goods, maybe marriage partners and so on. So it's it's a social, social site um, where people met occasionally and apparently marked the site with monuments. So this implies... A lot of um, yeah, social activity going on there and um, a hierarchy, for example, not suspected in such early periods. We're talking about um, the very beginning of the Neolithic. And to construct monuments like this, you need, um, of course, a number of people cooperating. You need someone coordinating this and uh, probably also some kind of um, yeah, specialization in labor um, so this is giving us all new ideas about the social structure of the Neolithic, actually. So this is a, what, in my in my eyes, it's the most important thing about the site. Yeah. Yeah, because we don't see sites like we don't see sites like this um, outside of. I don't want to call it civilization because that's not exactly correct. Yeah, but I mean, that's a whole new discussion. Yeah, exactly. But usually when you see things this large built at this scale, it's usually a group that has settled down in an area and they've kind of claimed the area. Now you're saying that these were hunter-gatherers, which means they're they're people in motion. They're, they're not in one particular space for yeah. longer than that's a season. The site is a cooperative a focus of cooperative activity makes sense that groups marking it in a kind of cooperated effort cooperating effort so it's uh, it's not marking a territory in the sense of a of a yeah, state or, or borders but it's marking uh, a social situation of different groups coming together it somehow makes sense in my in my opinion I think that's really neat. I mean, that's, that's a, like you were saying, that's a game changer. Um, yeah. And not for the reasons that some people are trying to push. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, now, you've been out there for several seasons, and you've also come on and talked about some of the weirder things that people associate with the site. Um, the comet and the climate change are, well, the younger Dryas in general is used not just for Gobeki Tepe, but for several other um, old sites. But it's used in a way that kind of implies that the sites are actually older than they are. And so they'll predate, um, well, predate hunter-gatherers and the Paleolithic and all of that. And the implication there is that there was a another group of people, or a super race of people, if you will, um, what do you do with, and I know you've encountered this, so 
what do you do with that when you're confronted with it when you have people come to you and you're like yes but the younger dryas means that there was another race of people and they're the ones that built the the, the site i mean what 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 could you do <laughs> I mean, our best best effort would be to to say how it when, when it wasn't that way and how it probably was i mean as archaeologists we are far from saying we know the truth but we we think we can can come up with interpretations and scenarios so we can suggest how it probably was and trying to counter these narratives of uh, ancient super civilizations. I mean, one one good example is that um, if there was a lost civilization uh, before the uh, so-called civilizations or high cultures we know, um, and I'm speaking of the Mesopotamia, Egypt and so on, if there was an older super civilization, uh, Atlantis or whatever, uh, Biggest question would be what? Where, where are these uh, monuments? Where are the tools? Where where are yeah any remains of these uh, the people? I mean, civilizations are and I just heard this in uh, in another discussion are big messy network and they leave all kinds of things and we probably would have found some things of uh, of lost uh, lost civilizations. And the other thing is, um, what did these people eat if uh, there was a huge right. civilization? We probably would have found anything in the uh, in the animal record. I mean, we know uh, about domestication of animals and plants and when this happened and where this happened. And this fits our narrative of the so-called Neolithic Revolution. So if there was a big scale society or civilization predating these events um, we have to ask ourselves what the, what what did these people eat because apparently they were still hunting there were no domesticated animals back then according to to our finds what i want to do actually is i know it's kind of early but i want to go to break real quick because when we come back i want to start talking about the the crater in greenland and micro diamonds and i feel like that's going to be a larger conversation so let's go to break real quick and when we come back we'll start talking about the bling all right <laughs> funny bitty blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology this independent podcast is listener supported and we'd like to take a minute to thank our new patreon supporters steven chase hansel timothy schreier laura kirstick mr stitches nathan andrew leaflight chris buchholz kate swanson and pamela ebby thanks to all our new supporters on patreon and if you'd like to join them just look for archie fantasies on patreon or you can donate to us one time on ko-fi thanks again for listening now let's get back to the show everyone and we are back and i am still talking with jens and so when we left we were talking about um the younger dryas and the idea that it was not a natural cycle but was actually caused by an asteroid hitting the earth and this isn't the first time this claim has been made this is i think this is like the third time i've heard it and much like atlantis this impact site kind of floats around the globe and this time the claim is that it was found in greenland uh underneath the ice in greenland and this article actually got carried by well it got carried by several reputable sites like uh, the smithsonian's got it science.com's got it um it's, it's interesting to be to see this being taken seriously like this what is 
I mean, this is something that you encounter a lot when you're doing your research. So how how are you taking this information? I, I mean, um, I'm not going to discredit the um, the impact crater discovery or the the uh, news coverage or publication of this thing because I've, I've read the paper and well, the, the crater is obviously it's there. The problem is that the public perception or what news media agencies are making of it is not exactly what the scientists reporting on the thing are saying. I mean, that never happens. So, yeah. And that was sarcasm if no one picked up on it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this, there, there obviously is a huge impact crater um, in the ice in Greenland, Greenland, which is quite interesting because as far as I know, it's the only only one so far known in the in the ice shield um, itself. Um, the thing is that we do not yet know an uh, exact date of uh, the event creating this um, this um, crater. So it seems to be rather young, but there is no reliable evidence to connect it to a younger driest impact event. So that's the first thing um, we really have to emphasize here. There is not yet um, proper evidence to say this is the, uh, the result of uh, the younger, younger driest impact. That's uh, one thing. Um, the second thing is that, I mean, we're talking about Greenland here, and of course the effects of an, a hypothetical impact are there would have um, been um, uh, felt all over the Northern Hemisphere and probably even beyond. But um, in some of the hypotheses um, which we're discussing here, in particular if it comes to the iconography of sites like uh, Gibraltar Tepe or other Neolithic sites, are somehow implying people have witnessed the event and depicted it. And this is something um, I'm very, very suspicious of, to be honest. Well, yeah, that was one of the things that the last time you were on the show, that was one of the things the article that we were discussing had made mention of is that uh, some of the images at Gobeki Tepe was recording, witnessing, not the impact exactly, but I think the comet itself coming yeah. into the atmosphere. Yeah, um, but events happening about a thousand years before the monuments actually were erected. This is something, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I think there was then, like, I've, I know I have heard an argument, I don't know where I got this, but I know I heard an argument that um, that was a, a passed down memory, a cultural memory that was passed down um, and was then recorded. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, take that how you want. It, it's interesting to me that in these articles uh, that came out around November the 18th mm -hmm. of this year, that, you know, the, the first couple paragraphs of the article do talk about the crater itself uh, and the discovery of the crater. And then there's some speculation about what an impact like that would have been, would have done to the, the climate uh, at mm -hmm. the time. But then it immediately jumps into, like you were saying, it drags up that, that idea that this caused the younger Dryas and that um, now the people who are pushing that are, are basically saying, Oh, look, they found the evidence. You're saying that, it's not even timeline-wise possible. Well, not yet. I mean, there's still a lot of. I think they have to um, to calibrate um, the the ice core dates and to connect it to the actual um, actual uh, crater they now found. But this is all work in progress. So there's definitely not a 
reliable date as of yet. And another thing which we should keep in mind here actually is that um, all these explanations we're talking about here are, and this is typical for this kind of um, um, yeah, narrative, uh, monocausal. So we're trying to, to reduce a lot of complex and variable events and effects to one event. So um, we have here we have the the um, global extinction of uh, of large mammals. We have the rise of agriculture. We have uh, abrupt climate changes and so on. And all is going back to one event. So this is uh, it's a bit too easy, I'm afraid. It's not exactly possible. No, that's not how I want to say it. It's not all correlated to necessarily be caused by each other. Like the rise of agriculture didn't wipe out large mammals all across the earth. That's it's, it's, not how that works. Not even all large mammals were wiped out. So the, the comet was pretty picky in which uh, animals to, to uh, um, wipe out and which not. That's, that's one thing. Another thing is there are certain layers, and I'm aware of, um, uh, of a couple of sites related, uh, related to these younger dryest boundaries. Boundary. Um, apparently, they are not dating all to the same time. So um, they can't be the the effect of one event. So this is another thing that chronology really, really um, um, is is very chaotic in this whole uh, line of arguments. See, that's really interesting that there's like, uh, like I was saying, like, like the supposed comet from the Younger Dryas has been the impact site has been located all over the place, and yeah. you're saying that there's layers that are being associated with it all throughout geological time, and none of them are correlating. See, that's interesting. Like, I find that a lot when I'm doing research, though. People will just kind of connect dots that aren't necessarily on the same line just for the sake of having a line. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I see that this how this works. It's a good story, and if it, if it fits the story, of course, it's a, it, it makes a, a nice argument. But um, there are so many points you, you could just pick out of this. I mean, people are talking about um, uh, wildfires. So the comet was supposed to have... Um, created a, a global fires which uh, had an effect uh, on the atmosphere and this again had an effect on, on temperature and climate and um, the thing is if you look into into the studies um, um, regarding these wildfires there they are definitely uh, uh, quite some heavy fire events in the past of this planet um, also around the period uh, of the younger dries but also, a thousand years before and after this event. So there's no peak in the Younger Dryas. These things happen. This is a, the, our planet as a dynamic ecosystem. These things happen, and you just can't them, uh, put them, pinpoint them to one event. Uh, this is uh, the most important thing, uh, and most important takeaway, I would say. Now, there is an interesting, I guess, phenomena that is associated with the comet impact not this one in Greenland, but the Younger Dryas impact that may or may not have happened. And I'm pretty sure it didn't. Um, it's this report of finding microscopic diamonds. Yeah, the nanodiamonds. The yeah. nanodiamonds, yeah. Um, we've we've kind of talked about it on the show, uh, my my co-hosts and I, and I think we talked about it when you came on the show a little bit. Can you can you fill us in on what the nano diamonds are? Can you explain it to the listeners? Um, well, again, um, well, it's again, definitely not my my field of expertise. Right? Yeah, um, they are 
as far as I understand, a carbon spherules, which um, somehow um, originated from the um, Im impact energy and the power um, of this this um, extraterrestrial uh, uh, space rock or whatever we would like to call it. Uh, the, the thing which I read on this, and again, I'm just uh, paraphrasing what I read because I'm it's nothing I, I do research in this, that it seems possible that this is a misidentification of uh, uh, certain other uh, aggregates like graphene, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I remember when I was doing research for this that there's there's only a couple groups that have successfully found the nanodiamonds. And when we're talking diamonds here, I want my readers to understand we're not talking like cut sparkly oh. diamonds we're talking like rocks <laughs> diamond the the raw diamond which doesn't really look like much um and then again we're you know and then you're knocking them down to like atomic size practically from the sounds of it but the point is is that nobody really has found these micro diamonds these nano diamonds that they keep going on about except for one group and they've never been able my understanding been able to reproduce those micro diamonds yeah and my other question and, and and I have a an archaeogeologist or wow I butchered that. <laughs> I have a geologist coming on later on on the show um, later on in the year to talk about this. But like, why is the Younger Dryas crater or why is the Younger Dryas comet impact the only one I've ever heard of that is supposedly creating these micro diamonds? Like the the planet got smacked with so many uh, asteroids when it was forming. Yeah, you know, and I mean, we occasionally get hit with one nowadays. Um, I've never heard claims of microdiamonds before from any of these. This seems to be very specific to this supposed event. And even then, like that particular piece of evidence can't seem to be reproduced on demand. Yeah, and as, as far as I understood, um, the analogs of different layers um Come, I mean, it was certain carbon crystalline structures, nanodiamonds, and everything, but um, the they were not unique to to an impact event, as far as I understood. I'm not a not a geologist, so um, um, but it sounds convincing to me that um, if you have so many events in the history of this planet, similar events with a similar energy. Um, it seems rather strange to to say the least that um, only one specific impact event created uh, this kind of carbon. So that's uh, at least irritating. So, so what I'm hearing is you you guys have been hoarding all the micro diamonds at Gobeki Tepe. I, I think I wouldn't sit here in, uh, in my apartment if I. If I was sitting uh, on a bunch of micro diamonds, <laughs> because it's pretty cold in Berlin right now, I could could imagine better place to spend micro diamonds. You mean you don't just leave when it gets cold in the winter? <laughs> um, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about because um, you know I'm rereading these things, and of course the the people responsible for finding the crater itself are interestingly trying to not interesting. I mean, it's understandably. Uh, they are trying their damnedest to distance themselves from this uh, uh, younger Dryas compact or comet thing. Yeah, I'm sure they do. 
Right. And I'm not even going to try to say this guy's name because yeah. these aren't letters that occur in my alphabet, and I apologize. Um, <laughs> I'm just not that good. <laughs> um, but he is he is literally quoted as saying, I'm not putting myself in front of that bandwagon, which means to me that he's aware of the controversy around this and wants nothing to do with it what does that say to you as a researcher when you see another researcher who has clearly found something um to just kind of step away and say he's not going to touch it uh, well the the theory itself is uh well to say it's it's debated is is quite an understatement um it's uh well the evidence put forward is not convincing yet and as I said, the researchers themselves did not come up with a proper date for the impact. So it's absolutely understandable that they don't want to to go uh, into, into this kind of connection at this point uh, in their research. So if they don't even know how to date this thing or, or how old it actually is, uh, saying it is related to a possible younger dry's impact would mean to to make the second step before you take the first one. And so this is not how, how science works. And I, I want to ask you about that. And I'm, I'm just throwing things out there because I want people to understand why a professional researcher wouldn't just, you know, dive into something like this. Let's pretend like the, the Greenland team did decide that, yes, this is evidence of the, the Younger Dryas impact. And they came out and they said it. And then, I don't know, two months from now, their dates come back and they find out that, no, it's it's far too young or far too old to be associated. What does that do to a researcher professionally when that kind of a thing happens? Credibility. So, I mean, if, if you come up with all fancy ideas and publish them and uh, go out the, into the news with all kinds of great stories and a couple of weeks later you say ah well you know sorry our dates uh, the lab work we're doing uh, takes time uh, now our dates say yeah, it's, it was a good story but well we missed the mark it's it's not true so that's something you're yeah i mean you're you're uh, jeopardizing your credibility what whatever you say in the future uh, has to be taken with more when a when a pinch of salt then Right, so this isn't something, the point I, I want to make here is this isn't something that a researcher would do. This isn't the reason why you don't see people just jumping on the bandwagon unless it's in an article that was written for a newspaper, um, is because professionals are not going to put their reputation at risk like that. Because it not only brings them into question, it makes future research for them really difficult to obtain. There's no reason. There's no reason. I mean, this this whole crater is a fantastic discovery no to 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 make it even bigger with, uh, with speculations the facts we already know are already way out of my head so it's it's already amazing there's no need to to sex it up right exactly i mean it doesn't need to be fancier than it already is the problem is is this theory has been out there for so long and people have been desperate to prove it that they're grasping at any little straw that comes out to them. And because this younger Dryas thing is so, like you said, sexy, the media is all over it every time it pops up. Because I, you know, you read these articles that were published around, like I said, November 18th. There's several of them. They're all kind of repeating the same parent article. So there's somewhere there's a, 
a parent article that they're all just basically clipping and quoting from. Um, but it does. It immediately starts to associate these things with the younger Dryas with no reason to do that. And this is exactly it has no evidence for it. I want to go to break real quick. And when we come back, I want to talk about the impact of the media's reporting and how that's affecting the public perception of what's going on. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the We hope you're enjoying this episode. Please be sure to check out the show notes at www.archiefantasies.com for further information about our hosts, guests, and topics in this episode. This podcast is listener-supported, and we appreciate every donation, either in the time it takes you to rate and share this episode, or monetarily on Patreon and Ko-fi. You can connect with us on the blog, by email or on Twitter. Thanks to all of our supporters. And let's get back to the show. Dinosaurs. Raise your trials as one will call. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Everyone, and we are back, and we are still talking with Jens about the Younger Dryas and the crater uh, that was discovered in Greenland, which I should probably tell people is called the Hiawatha Crater because Hiawatha was cool. And. <laughs> We were talking about um we were talking about how the media is presenting this impact and how the media is the driving force behind connecting this crater discovery with um this younger dryas theory of a comet impact that created massive global climate change that wiped out very pickily, only certain large animals and somehow brought across culture change in agriculture. Um, we've already established that none of that appears to be true, um, but it's not stopping the media. So the next thing, I guess my next question is, as a researcher who is very public with your research and you do kind of engage with the public in general because you're all over Twitter and I'm sure you do all kinds of stuff while you're in Berlin, while you're teaching and while you're researching and all that kind of stuff. So how do you, what do you think is the most important, the not most important, what do you think is the best way that we as archaeologists and we as scientists could be combating this really bad coverage by the media? Um, yeah, accessibility, I think. Um, one big problem we used to have and i think on a good way here is that a lot of the things we are doing are not visible so we are we're doing research we're publishing in uh, and uh, great journals which are available in research libraries but uh, would cost a fortune if you would just like to buy one uh, as a private person so nobody's actually reading the the things we're we're publishing for our colleagues um, and this is why the public perception was, and I think still is, largely um, modeled by those who offer the accessible material. And this is not always the researchers doing the work. This is all too often, um, how to say it in a nice way, people um, exploiting these uh, data with uh, fancy stories, great books, um, and yeah, you have to call it pseudo-archaeological narratives. So if you want, if you're looking for some information regarding an excavation or a new discovery, nowadays you fire up the computer, a search engine, and uh, 
you find your information in the internet, but this is not where you find the um, scientific papers by the researchers coming up with these data. Well, you may find a link to a scientific paper, but more often than not, your your search is ending at a paywall. So <laughs> yeah, you you might be able to read the yeah, abstract if you're lucky. And this is um, what we in the in the research project did as well, thinking that if you want people to somehow see your point of view as well and to to um, read your models, your interpretation, uh, you have to be present there where these people are looking for information and this is the internet. And this is why personally I think that um, things like blogs or Twitter engagements or ask me anything uh, kind of questionnaires are important and something we as researchers uh, I know not everybody likes it, and you, I'm, I'm, I'm far from forcing anybody to communicate in this way. But um, if you don't have a problem with uh, engaging the public, I really think this is one of the best things to do: to be present and to answer requests and questions, because this is how you, how you can dominate the narrative, how you can claim back the narrative of your own research. Right. I mean, you brought up, um, you brought up your project and you're referring to the blog slash website that is been set up for the Golbeki Tepe site. Um, and it, it is, it's very nice. It's very, I think it's very nice and accessible and you've written several, you're not the only person who writes for it, but you've written several of the articles. Yeah, and I think that's also really interesting that you guys have been able to get your entire team to participate so that you're getting perspectives not just from one person, but you're getting it from everyone who's out there working. Uh, I think that's very valuable as well because... I think that's also something that maybe public perception does not realize. But science and archaeology in particular is not a one-man show. This is Exactly. Team effort actually. Nobody's coming up with this stuff on its own. It's a lot of people working together, uh, making this this happening. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's great. You don't see that a lot, um, and I have noticed. This is my personal perception. It may not be one hundred percent true factually, but it's my opinion. Therefore, it counts. Mm. Um, it seems like this particular th this kind of setup happens a lot more uh, with European sites as opposed to American sites. Um, I know that some of the, our mound sites out here have very active uh, web presences, but a lot of our sites are very protected as well. Um, not saying that you guys' site isn't, but you, you do get tourists out at Gobeki Tepe, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it, it uh, dropped a bit due to the conflicts, uh, global conflicts in the area. But yeah, yeah, it's a, I mean, it now is on the World Heritage List, so it's a touristic site. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, and so that's great because you guys have an, you have a very public site um, that can actually fill in those gaps yeah. in the public perception. In my opinion, I, I don't know if it is a really a, a national thing or if it uh, it's a European versus a US thing because I'm, I'm got to admit, I'm not that um, informed about the, the things happening in the in the US that this is not my That's my fair. field of research. But what I notice is that it also is some kind of a generation thing that uh, particular younger colleagues tend to be more open to uh, to these paths of communication. Uh, and we have to be fair though that this is um, 
well, I mean, it's on a good way, but as of yet, this is not regular part of our job. So uh, science communication in particular with um, the so-called new media is still something a lot of us are doing uh, uh, next to to our usual work. So this is something you do in the afternoons, on the weekends. This is not official part of, right. of your workday. And of course, this is extra work, this is extra time, and you cannot force anybody to spend their weekends uh, with writing blog posts. So, right. so um, the, this is something which has to change the appreciation of, um, of communication, science communication uh, in general. No, I, com I agree with you completely because I just got done writing an article about um, the lack of communication, but... Yeah. It, it's interesting that you mentioned that this is a generational thing, because if we go far enough back in at least North American archaeology, there was a point where archaeologists were communicating with the public quite frequently, like television shows and radio shows and, and on TV. Or, I said TV, but, you know, and it just kind of dropped off. It just kind of stopped. And now we're in this era where if you ask someone to name a archaeologists, at least here in the States, they're probably going to mention the guy from Ancient Aliens because he's all over the place. Um, and he's also a big proponent for the Younger Dryas theory, and he's a big proponent for these micro-diamonds, and he doesn't believe that Gobeki Tepe is the age that it is. He thinks that it was created by a older race of people that existed while the whole place was under an ice sheet, and... That's what the public's getting, and they're not – well, I mean, they can with your site because it's so public. I can send them to the website and be like, look, this this is the actual project, the actual archaeologists who are digging at Gobekli Tepe, the actual researchers who are studying it. You can go to this website and get firsthand information about what is going on yeah, at that, that site. That was the intention because we received a lot of emails asking all this stuff i've seen this on tv and i've read this and what is what is true why why is this not uh widely circulated that this site was uh, created by ancient giants or whatever and this is maybe we were spending so much time answering these emails that before okay if you write this down once and put it on the internet it's there for everybody and it worked it worked it, it's a kind of resource yeah yeah, and you can just, you know, email people and be like, here, go read this. And, you know, it cuts back on time. But you're you're right. We can't expect people. I mean, your guys' site is is great. I think it's a good model. I wish more more sites would do that kind of thing because um, it, it brings things to the forefront. It allows the general public to have access to it. Because I'm sure you guys write beautiful reports, and I'm sure they're full of information and research. But even I, as a professional archaeologist, probably don't have access to them. Yeah, that's that's the point. Um, I mean, now there's a huge open access movement, and I'm really hoping that all this uh, that this is the future of uh, scientific publication and publishing. But as of yet, a lot of the reports, a lot of our articles are behind paywalls, and that's the reality. Right, and there's, I mean, it's it's not like you guys yourselves put them there and you're trying to hide the information. It's it's just the way the system is set up, and there's a lot of criticism against the system for being set up that way. You pay twice. You pay to get this stuff published, and you pay to get this stuff read. So it's, so it's right, exactly. <laughs> At least they could do is send you a PDF of your own article. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jens, do you have? I mean, I think we've kind of talked about this enough. I. I'm sure we'll you'll be back on to tell us more about it. And Golbeki Tepe continues to be a very fascinating site, just in general as an archaeological site. 
do you have any final thoughts about not necessarily the impact itself, but about the um, the media's treatment of it and the public's unfortunate perception of it? Yeah, I mean, I can only encourage people to to look things up. I mean, they're living in the in the age of the internet, so you have access to quite some information. Uh, if somebody's claiming that they're uh, in, as a result of this impact, um, uh, a population decrease was happening in Northern America. Um, you can find reports of people studying Palo-Indian uh, societies, and you can see there was no population decrease. There was not even a gap in archaeological material. Uh, only because Clovis points were replaced by other points does not mean that people were vanishing, but that technology was moving on so this is something i would really really like to to ask everybody don't believe everything you you read in in, in papers and articles not even in the stuff i write um use use the tools you have and look things up check things this is uh it's exciting actually this is research <laughs> verifying or falsifying information yeah and like you were saying i mean when you get on the internet and you look things up, it's very easy to find misinformation. But I I personally think it's kind of easy to filter through it, but I could understand if you're someone who's not used to dealing with it, misinformation, it can be difficult to get through. But if you want decent information, there's lots of reliable sites you can go to, um, especially if you're looking for information on Gobeki Tepe. Can you tell us the name of your project site one more time so people can find um, the it? The blog is named Tepe Telegrams, but we changed service, so I have to look up the new service. But if you Google Tepe Telegrams, you will find it for sure. So it's still the, the blog itself is still called Tepe yeah, Telegrams, yeah. regardless it, it, of where it is. Links, it's redirected, so uh, it's all rare. Oh, that's awesome. And Jens, you've been on the podcast twice with us, and I like to think we're a reliable source of information, but it's my podcast, so I might be a little biased about that. Uh, so you guys can always email us if you have questions, and we can try to point you in the right direction. Yeah, that's something and, important. Yeah, Ask an archaeologist or a specialist in general. If you've got a question, most of us don't bite, and most of us are happy to answer, actually. That's true. And, and like we were saying, Jens, you're on Twitter. Who are you on Twitter? Uh, Jens to go, actually. Jens to go. That's awesome. And... We are Archie Fantasies, so we're pretty easy to find. So look us up on Twitter, look us up on Facebook, check out our blogs, and Jens, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider donating to us on Patreon or Ko-fi. Either option helps us out. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the blog, www.archiefantasies.com, and like and share us wherever you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at Archie Fantasies, or you can reach us by email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. That's A-R-C-H-Y fantasies at gmail.com theme music was provided by archaeosuit productions this episode was produced and edited by sarah head no we don't do dinosaurs we don't do dinosaurs see are you happy do you get it now do you get it honestly